Happy Easter. Thank you, Kylie. Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship, and really is the appropriate response to today, isn't it? Uh, Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate you being here. It's obviously a cornerstone moment that we celebrate in our faith, and uh, we're, we're going to do a slightly abbreviated service today. We usually do on those holiday on, our, on these holidays, and we're going to partake in communion together towards the end of when I'm sharing of what I'm sharing today. Uh, most of you are probably aware, if you're a part of the church here, that Jannie, my wife, and I, and Jen Rebo were just in Greece attending a Regions Beyond conference. Regions Beyond is the network of churches that we run with, and so we were gathering with a group of leaders there in Marathon, Greece, and so. Uh, it, it was a really, it was a good time of making some relational connections. It was good to connect with some of our uh, friends that we've made in years gone by, some of the global leaders, people that are leading different works around the world, and it was good to reconnect. But we also made some new friends that I think will be key for us, even as a church in the future, particularly uh, in South Africa. And so we, we, it really was a good time in that regard. Uh, I, I will share a story of one of my friends that I got to catch up with uh, while I was there, uh, I'll, I'll share part of that as, as the message to you. But we're glad to be home. Uh, we're still recovering a little bit. So if I seem a little uh, under the weather today, I am. And so if I'm kind of glued to this pulpit, you'll know why. Usually I'm pacing all over the place. And I might not do that for you today. But I am sorry I missed out on the baptism service last week. Was that a lot of fun or what? Oh, man. That, that, what, a, what a great way to lead into Easter Tyler preached a couple weeks ago about some significant components of the resurrection. Then we go into celebrating baptisms last week, and so I'm I'm glad you guys had a good time while I was gone. Uh, I was glad to come home and still find the church intact, so uh, that's good. Um, I look forward to hearing some more of those details of of what went on. I want to start this morning by just reading us one of the accounts of the story of the resurrection of Jesus, the reason that we're here. Obviously, today I'm going to read uh, uh, from Matthew's account of that situation. Each of the Gospels uh, records it a little differently. There's some different details and things that go on between the four accounts. And I'm going to read Matthew's account today, starting in Matthew chapter 8, 28, verses one, in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. As Tyler mentioned a couple weeks ago when he was 
sharing the word with you. Uh, without the resurrection of Christ, we don't have Christianity. We don't have this great faith that we share today. It is the launching hinge pin moment in our faith. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ hinges on this crucial event. There's so many implications, as Jason alluded to. There's so many things that, that we reap the benefit of because of this powerful reality. And we could expound upon them for weeks and months and years, and indeed we've been expounding upon them for 2,000 years, the implications of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. The whole New Testament is a result of what happened. This event was prophesied throughout history. Once it, was, once it had occurred, it was witnessed to by hundreds of his followers. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Chances are that back in those days, if only those women that had visited the tomb that day had seen Jesus, or if only Peter had seen Jesus, or if only John had seen the resurrected Jesus, chances are their testimony wouldn't have gone too far. They probably would have reacted a lot like Thomas did that that Tyler shared with you a couple weeks ago. Thomas, unfortunately, got known as Doubting Thomas. I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but church history, not necessarily, we don't know for sure if it's true, but Thomas went on to be a powerful evangelist clear into the east, into India, before he was martyred. So he didn't doubt forever, did he? <clears throat> but it was significantly important that so many people witnessed the resurrected Christ. He spoke with them after he had died and risen. He ate with them. He taught them. There was interaction with them. There's a lot of interesting things. John, in his gospel, records the most amount of detail of what Jesus was like after his resurrection. And it's very interesting to read and consider because there's a lot of clues about our own future in there. That number of witnesses of Jesus' resurrection gave it significant validity as they went from there and began to spread this gospel all over the world. Within 40 years, it was already being preached in Rome. The church was exploding on the earth because this great host of witnesses had seen that Jesus had risen and they were spreading this amazing news of why he died and what he had done throughout the known world. The events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection were so powerful that out of it would come a movement that would change this world forever. It would change the course of history. It would change the direction of creation. One could argue is the most significant moment in history. It would be pretty amazing to simply hear a story of a guy that had risen from the dead. That would be pretty neat. But in Jesus' case, so much more to the story. He did not simply die and mysteriously rise so that we could be amazed. 
He did it with great intentionality and purpose. There were many, many reasons why he did it. And those reasons would come to light in the moments following and for years and years afterwards. I think even today, we maybe don't really realize the implications of what Jesus accomplished for us with what he did. I seriously doubt that his disciples fully understood right away what the meaning of his resurrection, what the implications of that were. They knew some of the scriptures. He had taught them a lot of things. In the years afterwards, I I suspect they were investigating the scriptures and connecting the dots. Remember that after Jesus had risen, they didn't have all these New Testament letters and writings. They hadn't yet had the opportunity for Paul to dig in and be able to create these strong theological arguments and connections to Christ. In fact, if you go into the letters and you read some of John's writings and Peter's letters, and then you reflect back on what those guys were like when they were actually with Jesus, they had experienced great transformation over the course of their lives to where later they were writing these profoundly authoritative and spirit-led letters to the people that they were leading. Paul himself spent years studying Christ. You know, the story of Paul is really interesting. I think it was uh, pretty pretty, uh, strategically wise of Jesus to capture Paul. You know, Paul is persecuting the church. He's arresting them and having them thrown in prison. One day he smacks them to the ground with his presence, says, I'm Jesus. And Paul was on board after that. But Paul was a highly educated man. He sat at the feet of some of the greatest Jewish teachers of the time. And he was very zealous for God, but he didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah that the Jews were looking for until the moment Jesus revealed himself to him. But once Paul had that revelation, he became a powerful weapon in the hands of God because he knew how to connect the scriptures and prove that Jesus was the Christ. He immediately goes into the synagogues and starts trying to reason with the Jews from the scripture, proving that Jesus was the Christ. And you see that that was the pattern of his ministry for many years. But there were many years that went by before Paul really became the Paul that we know today. He began to learn and understand the implications and the power that come from the resurrection of Christ. Something that you and I should always be looking into as well. There's an interesting scripture uh, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and and it says that he opened their minds. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all of those things speaking about the coming Christ, about Jesus himself, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I kind of think of this time frame of like God just kind of planting some dynamite into that situation and packing some gunpowder in there. He's beginning to educate them. They're starting to understand the power of his resurrection, what was important. Just in a few days after his resurrection, he empowers them with his Holy Spirit, one of the major benefits of his resurrection that we receive today. And he was about to light the fuse for something that was going to change the world, and he was going to use broken humans to do it. And we're so thankful for that today. 
Now they hadn't only witnessed his death and resurrection. They'd heard all of his teachings. They, they were understanding the scripture. He was opening up their mind. He, after he left and ascended into heaven, he filled them with the Holy Spirit. They became empowered. Suddenly, miraculous things were happening. Thousands of people were being converted to Christianity after the Holy Spirit came. Thousands. It's an amazing thing. It actually wasn't even called Christianity at the time. It took quite a few years, hundreds even for the rest of the world, to embrace Christianity as something separate from Judaism. They were viewed for many, many years as a sect of Jews because the Jews were the ones originally being saved and it was based on the foundation of Judaism. It didn't become known as Christianity till years later. In fact, it was just simply known as the way. A worldwide movement was born in that time frame, something that you are a part of today. If, in fact, you're a participator with Christ. Jesus, even now, from that, that inception of this movement, has been fulfilling his words that he spoke to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I will build my church. I will build my church. Jesus is building his church. Church literally in that original form was just congregation is what it meant. I'm building my people. I'm pulling my group of people together. So much so that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. That's you. That's you. Jesus really launched this movement when he was getting ready to ascend into heaven. And he gave them what we call the Great Commission, which we see in Matthew. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. He commissioned us. He set something into motion. He gave a command. I'm leaving. Go do this. And it's something that we still carry today. We can see that what Jesus said that day was setting that into motion would continue till the very end of the age when he will return. Something that we're still obligated and compelled and encouraged to do today. Taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. It's our mission. It was the directive given to us. It's something every single one of us as individuals should be asking ourselves. Am I fulfilling the commission of Christ to see the kingdom of God extended to the ends of the earth? Whether the ends of the earth be my job that I go to every day, whether it be on the other side of the planet. Also, that he would be present with us in this mission that he's sending us on by filling us with his Holy Spirit. Sometimes I like to think of the Holy Spirit as his DNA, his breath, his mind. Paul said, we have the mind of Christ, that that's been given to us. There was a question asked in Scripture, Who will know the thoughts? Who would know the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? And he's quoting some historical scripture, and then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. God has given us an understanding of him that we can go and fulfill what he's challenged us to fulfill. We have his Holy Spirit. We are a people who are sent by Christ to bring this good news into every nation. I think that when we talk this way, we fail to understand or realize that that doesn't just mean for the random, rare missionary. 
We are all on mission. We are all on mission. Life is our mission. And everywhere we find ourselves, everywhere our feet tread, that's where we're called on the earth to spread this gospel. It's important to realize that about ourselves. One of my favorite authors is Andy Stanley. And he released a book recently called Irresistible. I haven't finished it yet. Um, But I want to read the introduction to this book. Because what he's doing throughout this book is he's reflecting on those first believers, the early church. And he starts it out with a little bit of an uncomfortable question in the introduction. I'm going to read it to you. In 2007, my son Andrew, who was 13 at the time, accompanied me on a trip to China. During our visit, we were invited to tour an American-owned leather goods factory. The owner was a friend of a friend. When we arrived, he graciously insisted on serving as our guide. Before we begin the tour, he introduced us to a Chinese girl in her 20s who had worked her way from the factory floor into management. He asked if we would be okay if she shadowed us during the tour. Two hours later, we were back in his office for a quick recap. As we wrapped up, he asked, does anyone have any questions? To all our surprise, raising her hand to shoulder level, our shadow spoke up. I have a question, she said. Turning to me, she asked, are you a pastor? I had no idea where this was going. I had not introduced myself as a pastor. I wasn't even sure if it was okay that I was a pastor. We were in China. For all I knew, she was a government plant assigned to follow us around all afternoon. Yes, I said, I'm a pastor. What she said next in her beautiful broken English caused the hair to stand up on the back of my neck. How good is good enough? I recognize your voice. I was stunned. How good is good enough is the title of a little book I had recently published. The manuscript was based on a message I had preached years earlier. She continued, Two years ago, someone gave me a CD of your sermon, How Good is Good Enough. I listened to it over and over. I then asked Jesus to save me and live inside me. Before I was empty, now I am full. If you think I made this up, I don't blame you. I have witnesses. She went on. I wanted to go to church, but there are no churches in my city. I began attending a Bible study in an apartment close to where I live. Sometimes I ride the bus to church, but it's two hours, but it is two hours and I'm always late. The bus ticket is expensive, and I don't know anyone at the church. I was both honored and humbled, but she wasn't finished. Looking to her boss, she said, Can I ask the pastor another question? He nodded. Pastor, she said, Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? I still haven't recovered from her question. I had no idea how to respond. I still don't. How do you explain thousands of empty churches to a young lady who would ride two hours to attend church in another town? A young lady who would be there every time the door was opened, if there was a door to open. The Bible study she attended was part of a network of underground churches, what the Chinese government refers to as unregistered churches. Her participation put her at risk. Owning a Bible put her at risk. Talking about attending church in front of her boss put her at risk. 
Imagine her shock if she were to discover that not only do most American Christians not read the Bible, in most churches there's a closet full of Bibles that have been left behind. I don't remember how I responded. I said something entirely forgettable, but I haven't forgotten her question. It's bothered me ever since. Her question is one of the reasons I've written this book. So why doesn't everybody in America go to church? Why is the church so resistible? Jesus wasn't. Once upon a time, his church wasn't either. The explosive birth of the church after the resurrection of Christ was so compelling that millions over the years have found it irresistible. One of the things that I want to focus on about why I think it was so irresistible and why I think it should still be irresistible today is the power of transformation. Jesus transformed from a regular earthly body to a resurrected heavenly body. He was sown perishable. He raised imperishable. He's brought transformation to my life. He's brought transformation to many of your lives. He brought transformation to the whole earth by what he did and what he accomplished. His message is powerful. Is our message powerful? What he did was powerful. Is what we're doing powerful? He brought about change that no one else could ever bring. And the forgiveness of sins is a transformation for our souls that we could never earn. We can't earn it. He bought it for us. While we were in Greece, we had a chance to catch up with my friend Abdullah. And I've shared a little bit with you in the past about Abdullah. He's a great character. Jen and Jani had the chance to meet him. Abdullah was born in India in a Muslim family, and he married a girl who a couple months before uh, their wedding became, became a Christian. I think she'd grown up in somewhat of an orthodox type Christianity, but she really gave her life to Christ within a few months before they got married. And he was a devout Muslim. I mean, you know, they do things like knock on doors and go preach and things like that. And uh, a very works-based kind of a way of approaching faith. And he, he was a good Muslim. It was his goal in life. I'm always going to be a good Muslim. I'm always going to do the right thing. But he confessed that he always had this particular struggle with his faith. Everyone sins. And in Islam, there's no forgiveness for sins. What do you do about the things that you've done wrong? You just simply have to face judgment when you face Allah someday. And he always wrestled with the issue of forgiveness and he would go to his wife's church and he would sit in the back like all you back there on the back row. And his wife would sit here in the front. One day, a lady asked to pray for him. I think really what was happening is they were praying for his wife and he finally came up and said, all right, we're done, you need to go home. And they said, can they pray for you? And he said, this was my arrogant thought. He said, I believe that once they laid hands on me to pray, they would see that I am right and they are wrong that God would show them that. And they laid hands on him and began to pray, and he had a vision instantly. It was just amazing. He, uh, and it was someone saying to him, I forgive you. I forgive you. He goes, who are you that you can forgive me? He said, I'm Jesus. 
he was radically, radically saved. Now, you know, we hear stories on this side of the world about what it's like in the Muslim faith. And his family was very upset. His parents, uh, they scolded him a lot. They had the, I just forgot what the Muslim priest is called, but he would come and, you know, lecture with him and try and reason with him. And, but he'd just been so radically saved. It was crazy. Well, we had a chance to sit down with him in Greece. I'd heard this story when I hung out with him in South Africa several years ago. But he sat down with us this time, and he started telling us that um, on his last trip back to India, that uh, his family sat down with him and said, we're done with you. We're disowning you. You're dead to us. And his dad said to him, he said, this is the, this is the lowest thing I can do to you. And you know what the worst thing I should do to you is. And he said, what are you going to do, Dad? Are you going to kill me? And his dad didn't answer him. And, he, and then he turned to me and he said, I know my dad wouldn't kill me. My dad loves me. But my brothers might. And I was like, ugh. And I, I'm like, man, I'm sorry you're having to deal with that. And then he, and then he said, I, that's like a tiny cut on my finger compared to what Jesus did for me. And I just, I'm like, I don't even know how to wrap my head around that. I complain about all kinds of things. And then you hear somebody's story like that, and you're like, wow, I should never complain about anything again. What was so powerful about what Jesus did on the cross and in rising from the grave that it would be for the forgiveness of sins and transform people's lives to the point of where they would leave the old behind to such an extent that it would cost them their families. That's an amazing gospel and a powerful reality of what Jesus did for you and what Jesus did for me and something that we want to represent to all those around us that are suffering and hurting and need that forgiveness and need that transformation in their lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given a ministry of reconciling the creation, reconciling those that are separated from God, reconciling those that need the forgiveness of sins back to God. That ministry has been given to us to share with the world. John chapter 3, verse 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. A more transformation language there. And of course, Nicodemus, who is the Pharisee that asks him this question, and he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus goes, what? He was thinking literal rebirth. But we know that Jesus' message would bring a new creation, a rebirthing of all of us that would accept his message, that the old in us would die. And eventually we look forward to a day that we will be resurrected and like him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. They're talking about drawing near to God. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. 
There's transformation that comes with this gospel. We can have a clear conscience. We're reborn. We become a new creation. Some of you could use a clear conscience today. Some of you could say, I could use a new life. I could use recreated. That's the transformation that Jesus Christ brings you when you submit yourself to his story and when you accept what he gives to you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This gospel that you and I have, this good news that God has given to us, this movement that began with his resurrection those couple thousand years ago still carries power, still carries transformation wherever it finds itself. We want to see the world transformed for Christ. We want every individual to embrace and witness and be transformed by that good news. Those of you that are serving communion, would you come up here? We're going to do that. Worship team, if you want to come up as well. Jesus' body was broken, like this broken bread that we're about to have. His blood was shed as the final and ultimate sacrifice for those that would believe in him. Today we're going to take the bread and the cup, which represent his body and his blood being given up for our sake, to bring us transformed life. Why did he give up his own life? Why did the God of creation subject himself to such a thing? Because he wanted to reconcile us to himself. Not only now in this life, but in the life to come. I want to read to you, Paul gives some instructions on communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I know it's in my Bible. Okay, here we are. For I received this from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore, drinks, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I think sometimes this has led to some superstition about the actual emblems. But I think really what Paul's getting at is to take seriously the death of Christ that we participate in. To not participate in the breaking of the bread, in other words, to participate in his sacrifice and his death for vanity, 
or flippantly or without considering seriously the implications of his death and his resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate this amazing gift that you've given to us through the death and resurrection of your son. And in participating in this bread and this cup today, we do as they did all those years ago, proclaiming your death until you return, declaring that we are participators in that, that we also lay down our lives, that we also give up lordship and we make you king, that we accept that broken body and that shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and that we're on this mission with you to the ends of the earth. Thank you so much for this amazing gift in your son and in yourself. Lord, we reflect on what you've done. And we're deeply grateful for clear conscience, for new birth, for transformation, and for empowerment that you've afforded us in the moment we celebrate now. On this day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus secured new and transformed life for you and I and all that would receive his message. From that profound event, a radical movement broke out with the directive of bringing this transformational reality to the ends of the earth. It is a truth that is meant to be wielded with great productivity and effectiveness on this earth. I have two questions for you to consider today as you reflect on what God has so masterfully and mysteriously orchestrated. To those of you who have truly made Jesus the Lord of your life, to those of you who have put him on the throne and made him the king in your heart, Do you still remember the powerful transformation that God has brought into your life? Through his saving grace? Is there still a fire in your soul to see this transformational message influence the world around you? I want to remind you that Jesus launched us into something that is meant to go on until his return. And it's a worthy cause for you to invest your life into. My second question is for those of you who have never really submitted your life to Christ. You've never really made Jesus the king. Maybe you've never heard the story of Jesus or anything like I've said today. Or maybe you've heard it your whole life, but you've never really been willing to let him be the king. To let him be God. And for you to step out of that position him right maybe you've been running my question to you is this is today the day that you want to receive the love the forgiveness 
and the powerful transformation that God holds out to you as a free gift? Is there a voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart saying, it's time? If so, please don't leave here today without making a decision to let him be God in your life. Submitting yourself to him and allowing some of our prayer team to visit and pray with you and help you with that. Would you guys come up to the front here, please? I'm going to have these guys up front. If today is the day that you want to bring your life back into alignment with Christ, or if you never have to do so, every one of these people would love, absolutely love to speak with you and pray with you about that. I'm going to wrap up the service now so people can go on about their day. But if what I've said rings true in your heart and you would like to make an adjustment, we'd love to help you with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this mysterious and masterful design that you've given us. We pray that today as people all over the world celebrate you, Lord, that you would truly be glorified. I pray that many on this earth would give their hearts to you today, fully. Lord, I pray that you would continue to to lead each one of us, to lead our families, and according with your will, and help us to be powerful and effective representatives for your gospel on this earth. I ask that you would work mightily in the hearts of those who don't really know you yet. Work mightily, we pray, Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've extended to each one of us and you extend to them. Lord, I pray you continue to reveal your love to those that don't know it or understand it. Lord, we understand we didn't earn it, and it's such a relief to know. And Lord, we look forward to the day that we celebrate in a new body that's so much like yours. While we're here, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful to this awesome work that you've made us a part of in the building of your church. Pray that you would be with each one as they go today. In Jesus' name.